Well, welcome to Onalaska Church of Christ. And if you're joining us for the first time, we're in week three of a message series called Lessons from the Light, and the light being Jesus. Uh, throughout the month of January, we're spending our time in Luke chapter 11. And in this incredible chapter, Jesus taught his disciples several important truths about what it means and what it looks like to follow him, to depend on him. In today's passage, Jesus is going to address a different audience. He's going to address the skeptics and the uncommitted. Uh, Luke, the author, wants to ask you a very important question today. That question is this. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? As we're going to see, there's no neutrality with Jesus. In our modern culture that likes to include everyone, Jesus taught there's really no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. You're either all in or you're all out. You're either for Jesus or you're against them. And so what we're going to do before we get into the message is we're going to spend a few moments in prayer together. Uh, I'm going to pray through the different steps of the Lord's Prayer, which is what we learned over the past two weeks. And as I do, I just want to encourage you to pray silently where you're at. Ask God to prepare your heart for the message today. This is a little bit more of a difficult text. Help, ask God to help you apply his truths to your life. And so let's pray together at this time. Well, Lord, we thank you that we can come to you uh, boldly and with confidence. Uh, you are our Heavenly Father who loves us. We take a few moments just now to continue to praise your name and to worship you for who you are. Uh, you are a perfect provider. You are compassionate and slow to anger. Uh, you are Emmanuel, God with us. There are so many uh, names that you've shared with us for who you are. And so we take a few moments to just remember that. Today, I pray that you would help us submit our lives to your will and to your plans, to your purposes. Uh, we know that your plans are always better than our own. And so help us to do that today. Help us to learn how to depend on you for, for everything. You've promised to meet all of our needs. And so we trust you as our perfect provider. Lord, I pray that you would guard our heart today, that you would help protect us from temptation. We ask that we would depend on your power as we leave this place, that we would depend on your leading in our lives, that you would be glorified in how we spend our time this next week, the words that we say, the thoughts that we think. I pray that you would bless this time that we have together and that it would be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me this morning as we read uh, this incredible passage uh, out loud. I'm going to read this today, uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 14 through 28. And this is what we read. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. Right away, you're probably thinking, what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts, 
So he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say, I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from. And so it returns and finds that its former home is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came, and the breasts that nursed you. Jesus replied, But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Amen? You may be seated. There's a lot here. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack in these 15 verses. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break down this passage into three different parts. Um, I'm going to use one word uh, so that we're keeping it simple. Uh, One word for each part. And I think this will help you understand the big picture. Uh, The three words that I'm going to talk about today are uh, accusation, argument, and application. If you want to write those down, you can. We'll revisit them shortly. Um, Accusation, argument, and application. And so let's go on this journey together this morning through what initially seems like a challenging passage to understand. Uh, If you're taking notes, the first word that will describe the first section is the word accusation. Accusation. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. It says, one day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. And the crowds were amazed. I think rightly so. But some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. So an amazing thing happened here. There was a man who, we're told, uh, couldn't speak, a condition that was caused by a demon, and Jesus cast the demon out of him, and then the man could speak again. I mean, this miracle was a crowd pleaser for sure. I mean, at this point in his ministry, uh, people were following him around just to see the next miracle, just to hear the next sermon. But rather than being excited for the man who was healed, rather than taking the time to learn more about this Jesus person, Some of the people in the crowd had a pretty sad reaction. You see, they started accusing Jesus of doing miracles, not in God's power, but in Satan's. And mixed into this portion of the crowd were subgroups of people. You had people who were following Jesus for the right reasons. They believed. They were laying down their lives to follow him. 
You also had people who were going to continue to reject Jesus. They had just made up their mind regardless of what they saw, regardless of what they heard. And then you had people who were kind of on the fence. They were undecided. They hadn't made a definitive decision yet because they they just wanted to see more. They were demanding more miracles, more signs. This is something we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. People always want to see more signs. They always want to see God do something more. And so there's an important point that we should not overlook in this section. You see, notice that Nobody denied the miracle. Nobody in this text denied that it happened. No one said that Jesus didn't really cast out a a demon. No one suggested that the man wasn't really healed. Everybody agreed with all of those things. The issue was that some of the people just wanted to see more. Some of the people said that Jesus was getting his power from Satan. There were some people on the fence. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, that brings us to our next word. That's the word argument. Argument. In this next section of scripture, we're going to read about how Jesus made a fourfold argument for himself, disproving their false accusations. And the first argument is found in verses 17 and 18. And it says that he, being Jesus, knew their thoughts. And so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war, any kingdom divided against itself, is doomed. Then he gave more examples. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And so Jesus's first argument is that their accusation is just absurd. You know, how could someone use the power of Satan to break the power of Satan? He was saying, your accusation, it doesn't even make logical sense. Any kingdom that's divided by civil war, divided against itself, it won't survive. It's going to fall. It'll be destroyed. So why would Satan use people to work against his own mission and plans? That doesn't make any sense. You know, it's unreasonable for people to think that Satan would operate like this. But what's sad is that I believe this kind of thinking really hasn't changed. You know, instead of accepting the power of God that we see in the world around us, people uh, attribute God's creation to random chance. Is that not doing the same thing? I mean, think about how unreasonable the secular argument is for the creation of the universe. When was the last time that you observed something coming from nothing? When was the last time you saw an explosion bring order and life into the world? Last time I checked, explosions bring disorder and death. Rather than accepting the power of God, people have been given over to their own hard hearts, believing unreasonable claims for what we see in the world around us. And that's just one of hundreds of examples, thousands of examples. Jesus' second argument is found in verse 19. This is what we read. He says, and if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcist? You know, they cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. Interesting verse that we have here. What do we do with this? <laughs> so in this verse, Jesus used um, another great argument. He asked them a question. Jesus was great about this. I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but Jesus asked a lot of questions of people. He wanted them to be able to arrive at the conclusion for themselves. He didn't just give them all the answers. He says, what about your own exorcists? What about your own people is what he's saying. 
You know, there are a couple ways that we can understand the point that Jesus is making here. And, and you know, without a doubt, some of you are going to Hollywood films right now in your mind and uh, scenes of exorcisms and things like that. And I, I think that Hollywood has done Scripture a disservice because that's not at all what we read and what we learn in Scripture. There's a couple ways we can understand the point that Jesus is making. I'll, I'll share both of them with you, and then I'll just give you my own opinion. Um, you're sensible people. I think you can arrive at a conclusion for yourself. Uh, and so first, we know that historically, um, there were Jewish exorcists. Right? This is a fact. It's an extra-biblical account, historical account that you can read. Um, although we don't know if they were effective or not. <laughs> so there was a job title in the first century for Jewish exorcists. And uh, I, would, I would lean on the side that said they probably weren't very effective in their job. So if this is what Jesus was talking about, then the simple point he was making was that you know, they didn't claim the, these particular exorcists, their own people, were from Satan. So it would be inconsistent to say that Jesus, who was also Jewish, was casting out demons by Satan's power. But again, I don't think this is the point that he was making. So if you remember back to Luke chapter 11, um, you're going to have to think back a little ways. This is where we were at before Christmas. Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus chose 72 disciples, and then what did he do? He sent them out ahead of him in pairs to all the towns, all the villages, to all the places that he planned to visit. And when he sent them out, he gave them authority to do several pretty amazing things. He gave them authority to preach about the kingdom of God. He gave them authority to heal the sick. He gave them authority to cast out demons. And so I, I believe Jesus had these 72 disciples in mind here in Luke 11. Chronologically, it makes sense. These were Jewish men, their own people, who were casting out demons. And Jesus' accusers never claimed that they were doing these things by Satan's power. They did all of these things by God's authority and power. And a large group of people accepted this. So why would it be any different for Jesus? And then he gets to his third argument. It's found in verse 20. He says, But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. He's saying, if, if I'm actually doing these things in the power of God, something amazing is happening. And you better take watch. You better respond. See, the Old Testament prophets many of them, said that when the unclean spirits were cast out of the land, that this would be a sign of the arrival of God's kingdom. One example is the prophet Zechariah. Um, he said it this way in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2. Just one, one verse. And so go back and read this because I don't like just pulling a verse out, but I want you to understand the context. This is what he wrote. He said, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. So what he's doing is talking about events that were going to happen down the road. He's talking about the time when the Messiah would come, when God's kingdom would be ushered in. Jesus is saying that time is now. So Jesus used a, a very vivid image to describe the work that he was doing. It's a phrase um, in the NLT, it, the phrase is uh, the power of God. He was saying, I'm doing these things in the power of God. Some translations, I, I think, maybe a little more accurate with this phrase, they say that he was doing these things um, by the finger of God. By the finger of God. 
This is a very significant phrase. Very rarely do we see this show up in Scripture. Several commentators believe that this is a direct reference to some of the events that we read about in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And so during the miracle of the plagues, listen to what the Egyptians had to say about what God was doing when all of these plagues were happening. Exodus chapter 8 verse 19, it says, Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And now what's happening, generations later, is that Jesus is doing all of these miracles. He's giving all of these uh, sermons. He's preaching the truth about the kingdom of God. He's doing it by the finger of God and the power of God. And guess what? People's hearts, they were hard just like Pharaoh's. They weren't receiving the word of God. The soil of their hearts were rocky. It was hard. It wasn't healthy. The power of God was on full display as Jesus was showing people that God's kingdom had come. And then we arrive at the fourth and final argument in verses 21 and 22. There's an important phrase here as well. It's two words, uh, the words strong man. I want you to remember that. Jesus said, For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, His possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. And so the argument here is that if the kingdom of God has come because of Jesus, because of his arrival, because of what he was doing, then that makes Jesus the king of this kingdom. The illustration that Jesus shared only proved his point. Jesus described himself as the one who is stronger than the strong man, right? That's that phrase you need to remember. Jesus is the one who is stronger than the strong man. Satan is the strong man. So Jesus is the stronger one who attacks him, who overcomes him. He takes away his armor, strips him of his weapons. He divides his belongings. He divides the spoils. And Jesus was stripping Satan of his power. This was happening right in front of their eyes. He's the king who had arrived. He is the promised Messiah. Jesus wanted his audience to understand that Satan's strength had been overcome. The apostle Paul, (laughs) he heard this good news loud and clear, which led him to pin these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus is that victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that there is someone greater and stronger than this strong man, Satan. And this is something that affected every aspect of his life. And this someone is Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who came so that we may have life. He's the King of the kingdom. And so this passage begins with an accusation. This group of people accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. And then Jesus gave his audience four solid biblical arguments against their accusation. The third word that we're going to talk about is the word application. If you're taking notes, 
And as you may have guessed, this is where the application comes in for the message. So there's some challenging truths that we've read about so far. And um, I want you to go home and wrestle with this passage. There's some things here, I think, especially in our Western culture, in the American church, we don't uh, typically talk about. But I want you to wrestle with that. And Jesus here, he pulls everything together in verses 23 through 26. He gives us the application. This is what he said. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. You know, this doesn't sound like the, the tolerant culture that we live in today. Jesus wasn't soft. I think we have images of Jesus in our mind because of paintings that we've seen or what have you. White robe and a big sash and long flowing hair. And, you know, he just did, maybe in those photos, it doesn't really show us that Jesus was a man. A man who walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk, he lived it. And he's saying here, he's drawing a line in the sand for the people who've been following him and listening to the messages and they're just wanting to see more miracles and they're just wanting to see God show up and preach a good sermon again. He's drawing a line in the sand. I think he's drawing a line in the sand for us, for the people who, you know, you come to church week after week, just want to hear a sermon again, you want to get filled up and sent out and then there's, there's no application. There's no true um, commitment to Jesus throughout the week. So he's saying, anyone who isn't with me is opposed to me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Then he gives a a story or a parable. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from. And so it returns, it finds that its former home is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. They all enter the person and live there. And so the person is worse off than before. I've entitled today's message, uh, No Middle Ground. And that title comes from verse 23, where Jesus said, anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. You see, there's no middle ground, friends, with Jesus. There's no neutrality with Jesus. Um, there, There are two spiritual forces at work in the world, and we must choose between them. Author Warren Wiersbe uh, said this about this text. He said that Satan is scattering and destroying. That's his job. But Jesus Christ is gathering and building. Satan's sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came to give life and life more abundantly. And so we're called to make a choice, and if we choose to make no choice, or we say, I'm just going to wait a little bit longer, Jesus said we're actually choosing against him. No choice is a choice. Again, that doesn't tend to fly in our modern culture, but it's the truth. It's popular in our culture today for people to sit on the fence and to be uncommitted. The world wants us to be accepting of all opinions. Jesus wants us to understand that if we're not with him completely, then we're against him. There's no fence sitting in God's kingdom. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. And so if you're sitting back today, you're waiting to make a decision about Jesus until you feel like you have all the facts or you feel like you have that feeling that you think you should get when it comes to being a Christian, you're in a dangerous position. 
Because while you wait, according to Scripture, you're still spending time with the strong man who Jesus described in the previous verses. This is Satan who's already been overcome by Jesus. If you're sitting back, you're choosing the losing side. And so to further explain this powerful truth, Jesus told this parable. I think that's how we should think of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, uh, revealing the danger of the person who decides to be a fence-sitter. In this parable, the, the man's body was the demon's house. And for some unknown reason, the demonic tenant, he decided to leave his house and go elsewhere. And so the man's condition, it immediately improved. But he didn't invite God to come in and feel that void, to fill that hole in his heart, to fill that space in his house. In other words, the man remained neutral. He was a fence setter. And so after some time, the demon decided to return with seven other demons who were more evil than it was, and the man was worse off than before. Now, Oswald Chambers once said that neutrality in religion is always cowardice. God turns the cowardice of a desired neutrality into terror. And that's exactly what we see in this guy's life in this parable. His desire was just to be neutral, to just be tolerant, I guess. I can make it on my own. I don't know about this God stuff. I don't know about this Jesus guy. His life was worse, worse off down the road. It was worse off than before. Neutrality only brings terror. And so this parable may sound a little out there to you. When I opened up the text this week and I, and I knew this is where we were going, you know, I, I was just thinking to myself, Lord, help us. But I'm convinced more today than I was a week ago that this is exactly what's happening in the lives of millions of people all over the world. But one of Satan's great lies is neutrality. One of Satan's great lies is being a fence sitter. It's being uncommitted. But deciding to not make a decision about Jesus is making a decision about Jesus. Are you, are you seeing how this connects? No decision is a decision. And the warning of this passage all the way through is that those who are rejecting Jesus or those who are deciding to sit on the fence, they're in a dangerous place. And Jesus goes as far as to say they're actually working for, working with the strong man. And so listen to how Luke chose to wrap up this, this passage. Verses 27 and 28. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, she yelled out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus could have said, you know, thank you, I love my mom. <laughs> it's a good, nice compliment about mom, about Mary. No. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. That we're not just hearers of the word. We don't show up for a show. Right? We don't show up just for a sermon and get our fix and go home. No, it's all of those who hear the word of God and then they do something with it. Because the Bible is for learning, but it's also for living. A woman in the crowd shouted out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came. Jesus responded immediately by saying, even more blessed are all those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. More blessed than Jesus' mom? 
That if I'm living in step with Jesus, if I'm doing the things that God has called me to do, if I'm being obedient and faithful to the word of God, that there is more blessing in that than the role that, that, that Mary had? That's what it appears to be saying. But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. See, the crowds of people were seeing the miracles. They were hearing the, the messages. But it's not enough to simply gain knowledge each week. It's not enough to experience Jesus from afar. Blessed are those who do not sit on the fence. Blessed are those who look at the life of Jesus. You hear the good news and you put it into practice. Jesus is looking for people who, are, who will give their lives fully to him. And he says, if you're not fully with me, then you're against me. You're choosing the losing team. And so we're going to circle back to this original question. It's a simple one, but it's only one that you can answer for yourself. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? My prayer is that our hearts would break. That God would reignite a fire in us. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but maybe that flame is going out, that God would reignite that passion in you. And that if you have been a fence sitter, you would say, I, I know the world has a lot of truth claims, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe the one that's, that is true. I'm going to believe the word of God. I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. And I want to encourage everyone today to go home and reread um, this passage and ask some of those questions that we've been introducing into some of our Sunday school classes. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about man? Uh, does it say anything about obedience? And how am I going to apply this to my life? Do your own Bible study with this passage. I think it would do you good.